It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornchain. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornchain. I'm a senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church right here in Colorado Springs. And I'm so excited that you're tuning in today. We have just wrapped up a three-part study on authentic Christianity. If you have missed that study, please visit us online at calvaryfountain.com. Again, that's Calvary and Fountain, calvaryfountain.com. This is a ministry of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church, so we're located right on the south end of Colorado Springs. If you're looking for a church in your area, come check us out. Services are at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. on Sundays, and we'd love to worship with you. Today, we are shifting gears into a new topic, and I've got a very special guest in the studio to help me do that. The topic is one that may cause some consternation initially, because you might be one of those Christians that's possibly on the sidelines a bit. Maybe you're just kind of in a wait-and-see mentality. You're struggling a bit with how polarizing things can be out there in the culture. And, and so the, the your promptness might be to just run to the church, stay silent on various issues, and kind of see how things play out. But what we want to talk to you about today is a very serious subject on the Christian response to national and state issues. What are Christians to do? When we look at the landscape today, we see all these things that are just really in opposition to God's holy word, things that we know are are perhaps building blocks to leading ultimately to the erosion of our society. What are we to do about it? Do we just sit by and watch, or truly are we to be the change agents in our culture that God has called us to be? Let me just read off a few of these issues for example, the Electoral College debate, well, that's still going on around us. It's like, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, as you learn more about that issue, you can see how the society around us is, is going to face some very real and significant changes if we don't learn about these issues, get studied up, and be a voice of reason in a chaos-oriented culture, it seems. Let me give you a few others that have happened here as of late. Uh, the red flag law, you've heard us talk about that here on the air. We've talked about the ex- this extreme risk protection order that went into place in April of 2019, a direct attack on the Second Amendment and the ramifications of something like that. We've talked about the democratic push towards socialism, even the unprecedented national debt. trillion and counting. We're now amassing about $84,100 per person in these United States and counting. It's just an astronomical number. It's very difficult for us to even wrap our mind around such a figure. How about the Equality Act? The impact of something like that on schools, Christian schools, on churches, parachurch organizations, quite significant. They've even talked about some of the the drug use issues even right here in Colorado. I mean, this decriminalization of hallucinogenic drugs known as magic mushrooms. And you're like, did that really happen? Yes, it did. In fact, that passed in May of 2019. And now we're seeing a 145% increase of marijuana use by drivers in Colorado alone. We've got a new sex education curriculum that came out in May of 2019. We've got a social security crisis, social security crisis. I don't know if you've even followed some of those details. How about the Women's Health Protection Act to prevent pro-life state laws? How about the prohibition of uh, conversion therapy that passed in May of 2019? Or even this uh, gender designation modification on birth certificates. You've probably heard of Jude's Law passed in May of 2019. 
Uh, even here in Colorado, again, Jared Polis signed the opioid bill. And it allowed uh, medical professionals to prescribe marijuana to fight opioid addiction. So one drug to fight another drug. Again, all of these issues can be just overwhelming. What are Christians to do? This list alone should cause us to fall to our knees in prayer. This should be a list that, that keeps us even awake at night as we pray for our nation, asking God to move mightily in our nation, to move mightily in our leaders. But it does cause us also to consider our role in this. As Christians, what are we to do? We as believers need to be involved in politics. Uh-oh, did I lose you? We need to be involved in politics because the government is involved with all of us. Now, I used to work in public policy with Tom Minery at Focus on the Family. He wrote this wonderful book called Why You Can't Stay Silent, a biblical mandate to shape our culture. In this wonderful book, he talks about being salt and light in this age, and it means contending responsibly for godly standards wherever they're under assault. There's no escaping the mixture of religion and politics because nearly every law is the result of somebody's judgment about what is good and what is bad. Now, some Christians are wary of involvement in politics and government, and you might be one of those. It's either because they don't like the way some other Christians have done it or because they find politics to be corrupt. But the purpose of government as God created it is actually a very noble one. And in fact, Chuck Colson wrote in God and Government that the state was instituted by God to restrain sin and promote a just social order. Now, Western political thought often mistakenly assumes that the role of government is determined solely by the will of the people. The biblical reality is actually very different. On the eve of his execution, Jesus told Pilate that he held his office of political authority only because it had been granted to him by God. In fact, the Apostle Paul spoke of civil authority as God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And Peter used similar language saying that governments were set by God to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. So the state was created for limited purposes. I mean, while it cannot redeem the world or be used as a tool to establish the kingdom of God, civil government does set the boundaries for human behavior. The state is not a remedy for sin, but it is a means to restrain it. Now, sometimes the state doesn't do its job. Sometimes it does the opposite, promoting sin instead of restraining it and actively undermining the social and moral foundations instead of supporting them. And as those times especially, we have to pay attention to what government does because we live with the results of its actions. Now, we could go on and on about this, but let me just try to bring this all home for you, because what I want you to do is to understand with me the seriousness of what we're talking about here, especially as we have our special guest to help us talk about some of these very serious issues. But as we look at our culture, we have a responsibility as believers. Unlike the Roman Empire in the first century, our country is a participatory republic. We have the obligation to make our voices heard and to get involved in the dialogue. Our government asks us as citizens to participate, not merely to shut up and obey. I mean, in the United States, we the people means Christians as well as non-Christians. And submission in our political system includes being willing to contribute to the political process, not withdraw from it. 
And when we see things happening in our culture that are in direct opposition to God's holy word, we have a responsibility to say something about it, to get involved in the process, speak up, and be a a standard of truth because the Bible is the rod of iron. It is the standard of God's holy word, of his spoken word revealed to us. And if we obey it, it will go well with us. There will be blessing across the land, even for unbelievers, if we hold to God's moral standards, his ways, or really it's the highway. And what we're finding is the moral erosion in our culture because we have discarded the word of God. Even in 1962, as we cast it out of our school systems, as we asked God to leave the the obligation that we had of teaching our children, we cast prayer and the Bible out of schools, and now we're seeing the ramifications of that, and it's far and wide across this country. So to help us understand then what we're to do as Christians, I asked a very special guest to join me here on Engage in Truth, and at only 19 years of age, Mr. Mason Luke has been very active in national policy and even cited by ColoradoPolitics.com and the Colorado Springs Gazette, among other publications. He was a field operations specialist for the Republican National Committee, and he's now the grassroots engagement director for Americans for Prosperity. Mason, welcome to Engage in Truth. Thank you for having me on, John. Well, as I've shared just some of my thoughts initially here as we're opening this particular program, and time will get away from us quickly, I, I, let me just uh, highlight just uh, this, as we preface here our first dialogue here, I want to ask you a very serious question. As Christians, though, we're Christians first, and I, and I know that we struggle sometimes with that, of thinking that America is wholly a Christian nation. We're certainly a nation filled with Christians, and Christians can make a big difference in the policy here in America. But as we're evaluating each candidate and each party and trying to select these capable leaders who best represent the values of God's holy word, I know that in Hosea 8.4, we are told to seek God for the leaders of our nation. Let me just highlight just in brief then how we got to where we're at with both Democrats and Republicans. It seemed to these two parties now to represent everybody, all 300 plus million Americans, and somehow we're trying to align with one group or the other. I know that George Washington believed that political parties would be damaging to American society and needed to be avoided. Well, here we are. I mean, yeah, so the, the politics of the 1790s, like the United States today, was dominated by the arguments of two distinct political groups, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. And the political parties of the 1790s, they emerged because of disagreements over three main issues, the nature of government, the economy, and foreign policy. And Alexander Hamilton was the leader of the Federalists and Thomas Jefferson, the leader of the Anti-Federalists, also known as the Democratic Republicans. And the Federalists would eventually become the National Republican Party in 1825 and the Anti-Federalists, the Democratic Party in 1828. So Mason, you and I have talked a little bit of offline about some of this. And for our listeners today, how would you summarize the top priorities for both of these parties or what you perceive you perceive perhaps their narrative to be for each party? I mean, if you were trying to do an elevator speech of Democrat and Republican, and you've been in politics for a while, even at only 19 years of age, how would you best summarize them? Yeah, for sure. So what it breaks down to is there's conservatives and there's liberals. That's mm. pretty much it. Um, <laughs> there's So the Democrat Party touts that they are for human rights and equality. And the Republican Party says the same thing. 
The only difference between the two is the liberals say, oh, no matter what you do, you're going to be equal to everybody. And we're going to make sure that you're equal to everybody. So that means mm-hmm. a millionaire should be equal to somebody at McDonald's and the wealth spectrum, which, which is where communism and socialism come in. Mm. Where Republicans come in is they say, yeah, everybody's equal in the sense of opportunity. Uh, you all have the opportunity to take out debt on student mm. loans and go to college. You have the opportunity to go start a company. You have the opportunity to do all these things. But if you don't do them, then you're not going to have a million dollars. So Right. Ca- cause and effect. Exactly. Consequence of yeah. actions. <laughs> what a novel idea, right? That yeah. take responsibility for your actions. Uh, I know that some of the top priorities that these were stated by Nancy Pelosi in 2018, and it sounds so good initially. And you think about, okay, well, I could I could stand with some of this, right? As Christians, we might get confused on these matters. She talks about lowering healthcare costs, rebuilding infrastructure, more transparency, uh, legal status to immigrants that they call dreamers. But now she adds gun control, opposition to a border control or border wall. Uh, highlighting the need for the Equality Act, abortive services, that's a big one that they want to stand with, climate change, oh, investing in all the stopping of uh, global warming, uh, increased social programs, and then, of course, the top priority in 2018 for the Democratic Party was to impeach the president. That was in her top list there. Um, and I have to wonder then in that particular list, where's the federal budget? As we talked about this blooming, I mean, this, this ballooning effect that's basically kicking the can down the road to our children's children that are going to inherit such debt. Uh, inflation is inevitable. It's already happening. Uh, but then we've not even addressed the issue of what about Israel, international relations, international relations, even the homeland security or even the sanctity of life. Right? It's the very opposite of that. Let's take life rather than not support and sustain it. And I think that some of the confusion might come because, like, for example, the Republicans have often been noted for these top five of terrorism prevention, economy, social security, homeland security, and military. Well, then on the other side, the Democrats are saying, well, healthcare, education, environment, Medicare, the poor and needy seem to be what they're, they're highlighting in that. But I find it interesting that a lot of times we talk about this narrative and then the actions don't seem to support what some have propagated. Like they, they go out on a campaign, but then they're not supporting that or, or they try to win the vote, but then they're not really standing on the very things that they said that they would do. Uh, for example, there were six candidates for governor in the state of California, and four of them were Democrats, and they stood in direct opposition to the very things that they said that they were once for. I mean, educational choice for parents, homeschooling options, gun ownership rights, lowering taxes, border security, tax exemption for churches, life preservation in the womb, parental consent for abortion. I mean, all these things that seemed like they'd be common sense things, only the Democrats were in opposition to. The Republicans were actually for these things. And and look, I'm just going to go out and be transparent here. When we were part of the National Day of Prayer trying to organize gatherings in Washington, D.C., we had a wonderful Democrat who was partnering with us to try to unite people in prayer for our nation, Mike McIntyre from North Carolina. Now, after he stepped away, we were very hard-pressed to find any other Democratic support just to pray for our nation. So I find that the divide is getting pretty wide here. I mean, it doesn't seem to be like the same message, but rather two different messages in almost an opposition to the very things of God in one side of this camp. And the other side seems to be trying at best at times to at least hold a some moral line. So 
Why is it, I mean, Mason, maybe you can give us some guidance on this. Why is it that there's this perception that Democrats fight for the poor while Republicans seem to fight for the rich? I mean, can you give us some clarity on that? Yeah. So this is something that we've discussed very heavily um, everywhere in the state as we increase minimum wage laws. There's a new minimum salary law that's in place. Um, and the Democrats are saying, oh, well, no matter where you work, your education, all of that, we're going to pay you an absurd amount of money. I don't care that you're flipping burgers. We're going to pay you $15 an hour. Um, even though you're not worth $15, that work is not worth $15 an hour. Right. Um, and then Republicans are like, uh, no, you guys can't do that. These businesses are going to go out of business. And then what uneducated people look at in the media is, oh, all of a sudden it's the Republicans only caring about the businesses. When the Republicans are actually looking and saying, actually, if you do this, they're going to go out of business, which causes everybody to not have jobs anymore. Um, hmm. So, so there is a trickle down economics, really, exactly. right? And, and so, I think perhaps it's an ignorance of economics that really holds us back. I mean, I, I'm frustrated as a parent, quite frankly, that when my kids come out of high school, they don't even know how to write a check. I mean, it seems like the very basics of how economics works at all. How do you balance your own checkbook? How do you know how banking works? How do you prepare to have a mortgage and bills and and be a viable contributor in our economy? These things seem so lacking as it's all been sort of, uh, you know, abdicated over to higher education to help people figure these things out. And it certainly should be happening in the home. But we are seeing, I think, a byproduct of that. There's so much ignorance and the ignorance is being taken for gra- taken advantage of, right? That the people with power are now trying trying to uh, really channel and move population groups based on their ignorance, manipulating them with misinformation to try to attain a certain outcome that benefits a small percentage of people. And then we think, well, and then flip the narrative and somehow suggest that the Republicans are doing that. Why is it that Republicans seem to be the voice more for conservative Christianity than Democrats? Because now we're really coming to this issue where can I be both a Christian and a Democrat? Um, I, I want. Could you just address that? I mean, I know that you know you've been in this for a while. I know you're passionate, have your own personal opinions about that. But it does seem like if we're truly going to call ourselves Christians, we're going to have to find some. Either we're going to align in one area or the other. I, there really isn't a blurring of the lines too much anymore. Yeah. No, I fully agree. Um, and it, I think it comes down to personal responsibility um, mm. because. I mean, we have a responsibility to God as ourselves. Um, and if you're going to go be gay, then you're actively living in sin. And it used to be that the Republican Party is against that. There's still a lot of people in the Republican Party against that. Um, but the Democrats and people on the left are saying, oh, no, everything's OK. You can do whatever you want. In fact, you can go become a transgender if you want. Um, in fact, we're going to create a whole month around just you and gay pride. So um, mm. I think that's more why the Republican Party is known as the Christian Party um, is they do say, oh, no, that's not right. This Mm. doesn't align with the Bible. Whereas the Democrats are going to say anything to fit their narrative, like such as, oh, yeah, God loves you. Yeah, God does love you, but that doesn't mean you can just actively live in sin. That's right. Yeah, I think that's that's part of the challenge is we look at the moral obligations. In fact, uh, morality used to be in the top five list for the Republican Party. It does seem like we've kind of lost some of those moorings as well. And there could be just absolute frustration with both political parties for many who are call themselves believers, where they just don't want to get involved at all. 
And, and that's not really the answer either, right? Because even a no vote is a vote. And we know that the, the dangers in that, if we just totally abdicate to everybody else, wash our hands of it, uh, just play no part in the course of this nation, we are going to find ourselves eroding from our uh, Judeo-Christian foundation that was once very prominent in this nation. And I think our identity is certainly being lost in this. As younger people, I mean, here you are, you're 19 years old, you're very involved in politics, public policy. It almost seems like when you talk to older folks, especially older conservatives, they just seem to think that anybody who's in the teen years as they're getting into voting age, going off to college even, they're just automatically voting Democrat. Is that true? Or are you seeing something going on in the younger populations of people? So I would say in the early 2000s, that was very true. We saw mm-hmm. 60 to 70 percent of young people voting Democrat. Um, and that's when the Republican Party around 2010, 2012 was like, oh, we should actually focus on youth engagement. Um, mm-hmm. And so they started focusing. That's where organizations like Prager University, Turning Point USA, um, and there's a handful of other small ones right. um, came in. And now we are seeing a shift. Young men actually tend to vote more conservative. In fact, young men voted 51 percent for Trump and 44 percent for Biden. Um, in this past election, wow. Women on the other, young women on the other hand, are still very, very liberal when it comes to voting. Um, so that's something where there's a lot of organizations trying to explore why that is. A lot of it breaks down to women are more caring and they use their heart more, whereas men think about facts more. Um, mm. and women don't want people to be hurt. They're kind. They're gonna say, "Oh yeah, like we can't let that person's feelings get hurt." So that could be why, but it's just a matter of trying to teach them. Right. So more education yeah. in this issue. And, and I think that is, we're probably doing a disservice as churches by not helping people understand the biblical values that we need to hold to. I know that there are a number of biblical voter guides out there, uh, and, and we probably do a better job of every time an election is coming up, not just being reactive, but proactive. How should we be as change agents in the culture? And this is a challenge really to all of you who are listening who are perhaps engaged in church leadership. I know that this is something we've been pressing quite firmly at our church is that we are working to provide these resources way ahead of time, not reactive as suddenly the week before an election, but rather hoping to instill in all voters, young and old alike, what is God's expectation of his people? What are the key issues when it comes to life issues? Why? Is God so pro-life? Know his heart, then you can know how to vote, right? And as long as we have this privilege to vote, we should take advantage of that rather than losing this privilege, especially if we're talking about the electoral college debates. Uh, things could change very rapidly if they get their way in that and suddenly change what's been foundational this country for so many years now suddenly we would shift and, and go to basically big cities determining the outcome of this country. So we need to be an educated people. Simply just dwelling in ignorance and hoping it all resolves itself is not the solution, especially with so much writing on this. Uh, now, in our just our final minute, Mason, maybe you could just give us some call to action points. Is there something even as believers that perhaps we can do better in this area? Is it something that perhaps the Democrats are saying that Republicans need to find a different way of communicating? Help us in our final minute. What's a call to action for us? I would say the biggest thing is register to vote. Mm. Um, and then also follow up with that and actually turn your ballot in. Um, 
It's a big one. Yeah, it is. Uh, a 2017 study was done by the Independence Institute for Colorado, and they found that if every single Christian had actually registered to vote and had turned in their ballot, that we could have made abortion illegal in the state of Colorado. Wow. And that's on us. Exactly. We didn't do our part. Correct. We abdicated that responsibility to another and just hope that it all works itself out. And exactly. then we see the erosion of our culture. We see lives being lost. We could have done something about it. Awesome. So you're absolutely right. We need to register to vote. We need to be part of the solution. And just kind of wishing it away is not the solution. Now, we also need to be a people of prayer, but may it not be a cop-out. If we are going to pray, let's seriously pray for the hand of God to move mightily, and that if there are leaders who are holding certain positions and they will not heed to Almighty God, may He remove them, may another take their place, and truly may America return to its Judeo-Christian values, making God the center of our operations rather than man's unholy will and sin dominating the landscape. And certainly that's what we're seeing. And I've heard that old quote that if God doesn't move now, if he didn't bring judgment against America, he's going to owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. May it not be. May there truly be repentance and revival across this land. Mason, thank you so much for being on Engage in Truth. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on, John. Well, and we encourage you that if you're looking for a church in your area, come check us out at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church. Again, services are 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. on Sunday, and we would love to see you there. Learn more at calvaryfountain.com. God bless you, my friends. Take care.